conversation this morning. Um, normally, uh, I like to put together the way that I speak in ways that one thing flows to another and there's like a direction that goes with everything. Today, I'm not going to do that. Today, I have just kind of some... I just put together some ideas of things that I think are important about making disciples in our homes. So they're kind of disjointed and it's just the list of things that I think are, are worth considering this morning. So it's not going to be one thing to another to another to another. We're just going to have a list of things that I want to go through. And we'll, we'll talk our way through these things and see, see where we get to. So <clears throat> what the question I'm asking myself this morning as I start is, what, what matters? About, about producing disciples in our homes. And where I want to begin is that, <clears throat> with, with this premise, that I, I don't think that unhealthy marriages can claim uh, uh, an expectation for producing healthy children, whole people. It really is the case that, that if our marriages aren't working well, our, our, our child raising is not going to work well. And, you know, a lot of us come from broken homes. I, I don't, but a lot of our people come from broken homes. And, and they found the Lord and they found grace and, and all those things. So it's not like God's limited by our capacity to, to have healthy marriages. But I don't think that we get to hope properly for healthy, whole children, whole adults coming out of our homes when our marriages aren't well. And so it's imperative if we want to talk about how to produce disciples in our homes that we start by looking at how our marriages are functioning. It's the basis through which our child training comes. And so the, the things that are happening at the core of who we are as couples is emanating out into our children. And so, <clears throat> so those matters, those things about our marriage, like first, the prototype, like what it means to be in our proper places in our homes, for us to be reflecting, um, I was thinking about this this morning, you know, it's not, it's, it's no, it's nothing special for me to come up here and say, you know, that husbands are supposed to portray Christ and wives are supposed to portray the church. That's, everybody that reads the Bible knows that. But what does that mean? And how do we deal how do we view that and work with that in ways that are both meaningful and properly humble? What I mean by that is that I worry when we have those conversations, like when we when we set up that typology and we talk about in those terms, that there's some kind of there always seems to be, at least there has been in conservative Christianity, there always seems to be this impetus to take that principle and railroad it and, and use it for, um, just, like, just like bishops abusing authority or, or whatever. Like there's this propensity to take the structures that God has and morph them, in, to constrain them into something that serves my purposes and use it. And that's, it's, a, it's like, it's demonic. It's a really, really destructive, horrible thing. Like the same, like that horror that you feel when you hear of some church leader abusing children. Like that, 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 like when the the revulsion and the, that's demonic and evil and anti-human. 
that same kind of thing we should feel about the, the abuse that is potential in a home when we talk about these principles and people using them for their own selfish purposes. You, we have to put these things back into the terms that they belong. We have to put them back into what it means for, like if we want to use the prototypes of submission and authority that come from Christ and his church, it has to mean to us what it means to Christ and the church. It ha and that, that isn't about power. It's not about value disruption. It's not about uh, over-under relationships. It's about harmony. It's about um, collaboration. It's about, it's about um, producing the best out of everybody that's involved. That ought to be what's happening when these things are in order the way they should be. There's some things, <clears throat> so, so if we talk about these prototypes of Christ and his church and husband and wife, we need to start, I think, with the proper humility to say that I as a husband am not actually Jesus, right? Like I'm in a typological place of Christ and my wife is in a typological place. <clears throat> I'm not Jesus. I'm pro and wherever sin and ego and self gets involved in those things, it corrupts and breaks and deforms that structure. And so we have to we have to account for that and we have to take the humility. Like I can't go, you know, I can't run roughshod through my marriage and say, "Well, I'm in the type of Christ here, so you have to do all none of that works. None of that produces what it's supposed to produce. It's just like trying to exercise Gentile authority in the church. It does the opposite of what it's intended to do. And so entering into these things and saying, I'm supposed to be portraying Christ in my marriage, but I'm not Christ. I'm a broken human, and I need to account for those things in my place of authority, in my place of responsibility. But I need to be accounting for and accommodating for the places where I'm not like Christ. And so how do I do that? Well, I do that through a lot of different things. We do that through personal growth, we do that through accountability, we do that through... One of the things that I've been focusing on back home in, in thinking about our community and, and how we interact with each other, especially, <coughs> especially as brothers and sisters, and I think um, you guys probably have a leg up here because you, you have family, like at least with you guys, like you can you can think about each other's wives like really like sisters because it's your sister-in-law. But approaching that kind of way of interacting uh, as brothers and sisters in the church and feeling, uh, I've been in a lot of places where I don't get the sense that the brothers in the church feel responsible for the sisters in the church. And the sisters don't feel open with the brothers in the church. And especially when we're doing small community-focused church work, <clears throat> We really need to, to accurately represent that family way of looking at each other and, and feeling responsible for the women in the congregation. Like this is something we've been exercising, I've been exercising back home, is having personal relationships, you know, appropriate, but personal relationships with the women in the church. It's not always segregated, the men over here, the women over here. So a couple of ways I've been trying to do that, like, okay, so we have a fellowship meal after every, after every Sunday service, 
and I'll go get a plate of food after everybody else does, and then I'll walk upstairs, and there's a group of women sitting over here and a group of men sitting over here. I'm trying to, sometimes I'll go sit with the sisters. What are you guys talking about? Like, I want to hear. I'm interested in what's happening over here. Like, that sounds fun. Like, I want to hear. And trying to get across those lines and make connections and asking people, like, okay, here's another example. We have our agape meeting, and, and a brother says, I was, I was not kind with my family this week. I was kind of upset at people, and it didn't go well, and I just want to confess that before I have communion. Okay, well, maybe at agape, but if not at agape, certainly at some point in that week, I want to say maybe as a couple, if, if it's come up a few times, sit down with that couple and say, hey, what does that look like? Like when you say you got frustrated and upset with your family, what does that actually look like? Like, are you yelling at people? Are you slamming stuff around? Are you out of order? Like, I'm, I, I want some specifics because that's my sister that you're treating that way and I wanna know what's happening. I wanna treat her <laughs> like if my brother-in-law came to me and said, hey, I was upset with your sister the other day and I was out of order. Well, what do you mean out of order? What kind of out of order? What are you gonna do to stop doing that? I don't want you treating her that way. And feeling the need and, and the place and the responsibility to be involved in each other's home life in that kind of way. That's church. That's what, that's what fixes these problems. When you have to give an account and you know somebody's going to ask. And that's why we try to live close to each other. That's why we want to be involved in each other's daily lives so that there's somebody there to ask those questions and to see are things in order? Are things getting too far out of order? What's happening at home? So I think those are, those are important checks and balances on the, the claims that we make about what our roles are in the home and how to, how to do it so that it doesn't produce excess and abuse. The things that I think that come from our marriage that are directly applicable to how we raise our children is first of all communication. To have a good sense of communication in our marriages it's vital because we're modeling, like think of that, back to that typological way of viewing marriage. We're modeling something about the universe. Just like we think of fatherhood as modeling, you know, God's interaction with his creation. There's a special place for fathers in that. There's, that's a special, unique relationship. Marriage is also a special, unique relationship. And not just because it's so healthy and wholesome for us who are involved in it, but also because it's teaching and communicating things to the whole world, but particularly our homes, about how it should be, how Christ and his bride should be interacting, what the harmony and unity and beauty of that relationship should look like. And so that's on display for our children. How do we work out difficulties and problems, and how do we, how do we overcome tragedy? How do we navigate complexity? How do we prioritize our time and our life and the way we spend our money and the way we do the things that are a part of, of living in the world. All of those and how it, how it has to do with our relationship is modeling things for our children. What, and it's all the, just like, just like we talked about last night, the, you know, the, the stuff behind the things. That, that modeling that happens in a marriage in front of our children, the long-term outcome ought to be that if your children get married, they want a marriage like their parents. 
that's what I want for my children. I want my children to come out of my home saying, I want to have what my parents had. I want to live in the same kind of harmony and unity and love that my parents had that I grew up under. That, that creates like something so deeply healthy to have a sense for what it should be like. Because things aren't always wonderful, and so if there's a good model for, for then you have an indicator of when things aren't healthy, what, what do we need to adjust? It's like having a vision. Like If you have a vision for yourself, for your family, for your marriage, and, and you're out of square with it, you know in relation to where you want to be where you are, and so you can correct course and come back in line with what you want what you want out of life. And so have, growing up with a, a good model of marriage, is a, it, it's like that bearing star. It, it's a way to keep moving forward in a relationship that's healthy. So it's a lot of responsibility on us. There's some practical things about that. Like, I don't, I have to be careful because I have a child here. I don't think that, generally, Eric and I don't argue in front of our children. We don't argue a whole lot, but if we do, if, we need to, if we're at different places and we need to talk stuff out, we generally do that in private. Um, that being said, we're not afraid to have, um, we're not afraid to talk about things. Like, I'm talking about an argument. I'm talking about like you've already established we don't agree. There's something not working. We got to work this out. That that conversation usually happens in private. But to before that point, there's a lot of openness. There's a lot of modeled communication in front of my children. Like we'll bring up issues, talk about things. I'm not afraid for my wife to be in a different place and hash that out in a family meeting talk about give get and give input to each other what do you think about this like all that stuff is great to have in front of the children but but the nitty-gritty details of like how do we get past an impasse that stuff I keep we keep to ourselves again it shouldn't be common it shouldn't happen a whole lot but when it does it needs to be done in the right way um, <clears throat> There's something I want to, I don't have a whole lot of text that I want to look at today, but one of them is 1 Peter. Um, probably would have guessed we would have gone here. Uh, it's 1 Peter 3. So it's just after this passage about, you know, the, the, the quiet power that a wife has in her home, and Sarah in the, in the matriarch's example, and then verse 7 it says, likewise ye husbands dwell with them, your wives, according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life. It's a really beautifully expressed way of talking about like being co-heirs of grace. Grace is God's power. Grace is the thing that only comes from God. And we together as married couples are inheritors, heirs of that grace. 
Um, so that means we, we're coming to grace as couples. That your prayers be not hindered. And so what this, what this, the implication of this, with this, the question that this begs, is that when we aren't walking in that kind of unity, not only can we not, I don't think we can expect to be creating healthy disciples in our homes, but we can't even expect our prayers to be answered. Like when we're out of sync with each other, we don't even have a, a legitimate claim that our prayers are going to be answered. And our prayers being answered is one of the most important claims that we make as God's people. That we have audience with God and that we can move his heart and that we can cause things to happen in the world. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we all. Like he's just like you and me. He's just a dude. And he prayed and it rained not for the space of three years. And he prayed again and the rains came. The steadfast, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. We have the capacity to move the heart of God and to cause things to happen in the world. It's one of the great offensive powers of the church, to move the heart of God. And, and if we don't have that, we don't have much. And our unity in our homes, in our connection as husband and wife, is essential for that prayer to be, to be what it's supposed to be. And so... <coughs> So I think that's worth considering. Would you mind grabbing some water? Um, Ephesians 5 is worth mentioning. I don't even think we'll read it, but that, that's this, uh, just to throw it out there, you know, that's the passage that's talking about husbands being... Uh, thank you, Riley. I have some. Husbands being in the place of Christ and wives being in the place of church. Ephesians 5 is worth looking into, maybe after the fact, after we talk here. Maybe you can look at it this week. <clears throat> Meditate on it, what it means and all this. The other thing, so communication is one thing about our marriages that I think communicate that has directly to do with raising disciples in our home. How we talk to each other, how we work through issues, modeling behavior, that, that's really important stuff. Another thing is that, another thing that our marriages model for disciples in our homes is collaboration. And what I mean by collaboration is all the, pl- all the places where the two of us together make one better than we would be on our own. The places where we meet each other's needs, where my strengths minister to her weaknesses and her strengths minister to my weaknesses and we feel in for each other. Like the combination of the two of us together coming together in a home and presenting like a unified one, it really does something beautiful. And it matches what, what, what I notice in my home is that that sympathy between Eric and I and her strengths and weaknesses blending with my strengths and weaknesses, it, it answers the needs of the home. Like the things that I'm not well equipped to deal with, she is and vice versa. And I think that I, I, I think that that's a design feature. I think that's how God connects people together. And part of the purpose of making two one flesh is that we have this sympathetic way of addressing the needs in our home and we work together. That collaboration and seeing that happen and seeing the, the, the give and take that happens in a marriage and how we minister to each other, how you know when one's tired, the other one picks up the slack and vice versa. Like all of that collaboration is a, it makes for good examples about how to cooperate in, in, in an expanding ring. 
Like, what does it mean to cooperate in the church? What does it mean to cooperate in the world? What does it mean to, to see and address needs and, ha and expend yourself for other people? And all those things that come out of the collaboration of a marriage. Let me talk about that for a minute. So there's another way that, that I think is um, it's important to me anyhow to address the, the f purpose for authority structures in the home. I've been thinking a lot about this lately. Um, I, did a, I did a podcast with my, I have a podcast with, with my friend Felix. He's an atheist. It's called Talking the Chasm. And um, we, we, the last time we had a conversation, he asked me, uh, it, it's always this way, he always, like he shows up at my office or somewhere and he's like, I say, what do you want to talk about? And he asks me some really thorny question and we talk about it. Um, so they're very unprepared, but that's, a, that's kind of a point. We want to just have conversations. And, and, and the kind of ethos of, of that, of, of those conversations is that you can be very good friends with somebody who you very much disagree with. That's kind of what we were trying to model. The last thing he, the last time we got together, um, he said, my daughter and I were talking, because they, they did the photography for Hannah and David's wedding a couple years ago. And he said, we were talking, I was talking to my daughter the other day, and, and she was um, commenting on and somewhat disturbed by the fact that at Hannah's wedding, Several people mentioned how she was, I forget what he, I think he said that people commented on her virtues, especially regarding her submission and obedience. And they were struggling with whether or not that was even a good thing. Like they generally didn't think it was. And, and it, it turned into a conversation about like, um, what the, you know, the traditional American wedding vows, um, love, honor, cherish, and obey. That's what they used to say. And so they, they were talking about traditional wedding vows and why, why is that that a woman's vows used to be uh, that I vow to obey? Like, why doesn't he obey her? What is that all about? Why is that? I actually don't think the conversation went very well, but um, I didn't, in other words, I didn't do a particularly good job of answering questions. In no small part because it's really hard to have that conversation if you don't have to find some terms. Like it's really hard to jump into that to that subject with an unbeliever and make sense of it if you don't understand like all of the background. Like if Christ in the church does isn't a meaningful concept, uh, I wouldn't be very impressed with the idea of marital submission myself. Like without that model to guide what that looks like, it would look problematic to me as well. So it's really hard to communicate. But what, <clears throat> what, what was interesting about that is that um, in talking about that, in talking about these roles and how, how, they, how they affect our, our way of being a couple, the, the other thing he was saying is that you know, in his marriage it's not that way and she's more of the, I don't know, more of the doer, more of the authority, more of whatever. But what is the purpose of having some kind of authority in the home? What, how, how do we think of that? Like, why isn't, why isn't, why aren't we egalitarians? Why don't we think that it's just as much a man's job to submit to his wife as the wife's job to submit to the husband? 
there, there's certainly a, a Christian worldview that's being presented today that, that articulates exactly that premise, that, that, that submission is a two-way street. I, I don't, I'm not going to take the time to talk through that. We can talk about it later if you guys want to, but let's, as, let's just assume for the sake of argument right now that authority is a proper construct, that there should be um, an authority in, in the home. How does that function and why should it function? It's kind of like, the question is kind of like uh, physical discipline. Like for non-resistant, non-violent people, is there an argument to be made for corporal punishment of children? Like, we don't employ violence in the world. We don't imply, employ coercion generally. Is there a special case to be made for why we should do that to children? Why should we use physical coercion in any of its forms? Whether that's, you know, picking up a child and taking them out of the room or spanking or any of the forms of physical coercion that, that can be uh, advocated for child training, is there a case to be made? It's the same way with, with these questions of authority in the home. What, what's the case for why there should be an authority in a marriage? Why, should, why shouldn't they both be Christ and both be the church? Well, the way, that, the way that I think these authority, the way I've been thinking about this issue lately for an in-house discussion with people who are Christians, is that I think that Submission in the home, like a wife submitting to a husband, as unto the Lord, it's really loaded language. You know, it's, a, it's a lot to ask. If it doesn't carry the proper weight of authority and, and those, those accountability constructs in the community that I was talking about before, if it doesn't carry the proper weight of authority, I mean weight of responsibility, there's a lot that can go wrong with that. And so what do I mean by that? I mean, if you're going to, if we're going to assert that, that there is an authority structure in the home, there's a couple of things that I think have to go along with that. One is that in the sense that Jesus is responsible for directing and producing outcomes out of, the, out of his home the, with the church, then we have to, we men have to burden, bear the burden of the responsibility of what's happening in our home. Another, here's a really practical way of thinking about that. Sorry, take me so long to meander to this place, but a practical outworking of that is this. I hear so often the notion that somebody came home after a long day of work and helped their wife with the children or with the dishes or with the laundry. It's great, help, whatever. But it's the wrong, it's backwards. You don't go home and help your wife. Your wife is at home helping you. If you're supposed to be the authority in the home, then what's happening in the home is your responsibility. The dishes are your dishes. The laundry is your laundry. The floors are your floors. The house is your house. And it's your job to produce what needs to be done in the home. And you have a helper, your wife. But when you go home after a long day of work and you're tired from the hot sun and there's stuff to be done and things aren't working well, you aren't helping your wife with the children. She's been helping you with the children all day. And to walk in your house, and I, I, I again, I don't want to over-spiritualize so it's not like there's never a place to sit down in your chair after a long, hard day and have a cup of water. 
I'm not saying that, but I am saying the way we talk shapes the way we think. Mm -hmm. And if you talk about helping your wife, you're shaping your mind to think that those things are her responsibility and you're pitching in. And that's not the case. If the home is, is functioning the way that I think that God designs for it to, you should see those things as your responsibility and she's your helper. And, and that helps me. It helps me when I come home and, and things have been difficult to look at all those things that need done in the home and say, no, that's my job. Like, you know how it is. We take that attitude to work. Like, I have, un, I have bad stuff happen at work all the time. And I don't get to walk away from it. It's my business. It's my job. I have to figure it out. I have to make it work. I have to make people happy. I have to produce the right outcomes. I have to do it. And I don't walk away from it. I don't leave it undone. I don't say somebody else will do it. I say, that's my job. We're going to figure it out. And the same attitude needs to come home with us. And when we come home, it's not our time to put up our feet. It's our time to be involved in what's happening in our home. And we have helpers, bless God. Our children are helpers, our wife are helpers, but the outcomes are our responsibility. If you want to claim that place as Christ in, the, Christ in your home, that position, that positional authority, then you have to take the responsibility. So it's a real practical way, I think, of modeling these, this collaboration for our children and taking that responsibility and not being afraid to jump in and do what needs to be done and feel like, because there's a, I, it really happens. Like some people really think that they're noble for coming home and washing a few dishes that are left over after a day when she's been chasing the children all day. Like it's not noble. It's your reasonable service. Like that's another context for this. Jesus says, the servant of the house, the servant, when he comes in and gives his master food, he doesn't think he's done something special. It's his reasonable service. It's just what you're supposed to do. It's reasonable service. If you have a home, if you're a householder, if you're a man of a house with a family and children, those are your reasonable services. And bless God that we have wonderful women who want to help us and want to work with us in those things, but there are responsibilities. <coughs> I'm, I'm telling myself that too, because I need to hear it. Another thing, so communication and collaboration, another thing is correction. Our marriages are a good opportunity for correction. And what I mean by that is that um, there are very few people um, that I, uh, there's only a few people that I, that I ask, that I want, um, that's not the way to say that. When I speak, the person I want to hear their opinion of what, how the meeting went is Erica. She's my number one, she's not, <laughs> I wouldn't say she's my number one fan, uh, but she's my number one critic. And, and she's the best at seeing where I misstepped because she knows me so well. She understands, like she, she knows where I'm coming from. She knows how I think. She knows how I communicate. And she's able to see exactly the places where I think you meant to say this, and I think you should have added this, and I think you, 
she's really useful to me in my ministry in that way because she has such a good, insightful critique. That's not just in my public ministry. She's the best at seeing all of those things in my life. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to speak really real here for a minute. It's also the case that nobody has ever offended me like my wife. For the same reason. Because she's so insightful. Because she sees it very, very well. And when, when I feel criticized by her, if I don't take that right, if I don't take it into the proper mechanism for handling uh, a criticism, if I allow my emotions to get in front of that, then I feel, I feel attacked and wounded because it's such a skillful shot, right? Like it's, it's, like, a, it's like a bullseye because she hits me right where, right where it hurts. And my wife, I don't mean to, by any of that that my wife is unkind. That she's very careful about how she speaks to me um, because, because she loves me. And she doesn't want to hurt me. But, but, when, but I find myself, under my wife's critique, sometimes like trying to shield myself. And like I have these defense mechanisms, right? And it's like, well, you don't understand this. Or what about you? Or all these things that people do to create defense mechanisms, especially in very intense personal relationships. We have really good defense mechanisms. And we're trying to shield ourselves from that really precise view. And this goes both ways with husbands and wives. My reason for bringing all this up is that when, if, if, we can, if we can grant that we do actually love each other, that we're out for each other's good, not harm, that's not always something you can assume. In, in, in self-destructing marriages, you can't assume that. People do, in their marriages, sometimes act mean and cruel and hurtful, and that's terrible to walk through with people and try to sort out. If we're not in that place, if we're in a generally healthy marriage, the opportunity to hear and receive criticism is there's so much potential to grow there. If you can cultivate that capacity to hear from each other and to listen to each other and say, hey, I think you're wrong about this, or I think you need to consider this, or I think you're missing something here in the way that you're thinking about this, there's no better input you can get than from your spouse. Because they know you so very, very well. And that other set of eyes is incredibly valuable. You just don't, nobody else can do that. I, I live with, I've lived in all kinds of, I've lived in all kinds of Christian communities. I've purposefully created my life in a way that people are close and hear me when I'm talking and hear me when I'm interacting with my children and hear me when I'm living my life so that, the, so that I can open up my life to critique. Nobody does it like Erica. Nobody has the insight and the wisdom about me like my wife does. And when that happens, you either erect a wall and insulate yourself from that input, or you bring it in and you deal with what you're dealing with when you feel hurt by that criticism is a couple of things. It's ego, right? Like, because I don't... Part of the problem is this. You can go through, especially phases of life, and some people are maybe more prone to this than others, but you can go through phases of life where you feel like the world is against you. And what happens when you feel like the world is against you is that when you go home and you hear something you don't want to hear about yourself, you're like, this is the one place I don't want people to be against me. 
and you, you take that as, as an offense. I, I, I got enough problems out there. I don't want to come here and hear that. And, and that's one of those like insulating moves, like to try to distance yourself, to cr- try to create a space where you don't have to deal with you. That's not healthy. And, you know, uh, as a caveat, we, we need to speak to each other well. I mean, a part of communication is knowing when to bring those things up and when not. I mean, when things are tense and the baby's screaming and nobody's happy is not the best time to do that. Non-conflict times. And Eric and I have, over the years, we've developed a pattern. We both know, look for the non-conflict times. Like, oftentimes, if we go out for supper and it's just her and I, that's when we talk about the, the rough stuff. Because we'll say, like, this is a non-conflict time. I want to bring up some things that I've been thinking about. And we know, like, that's the code for, okay, we're going to have a hard conversation. But we want to have them. We want to, we want to talk about those things. We want to bring them up. I don't, want, I don't want her to have to sit on those things and get frustrated with, with something that she's bothered by that I've been doing or the, a way that I've been acting. And I, as, as much as we try to do that, it still hurts. Like, I don't, I don't like hearing bad stuff about me. It's, it's hard. But what's the alternative, right? I don't become a better person by not hearing it. It's still there. I'm just not dealing with it. And so, so I find myself wrestling in my marriage when those things come up between these two paths, right? I can, I can hear that and take it in and let it do the hard work, like let it expose the things that I think that, that she's right about and work on those things, at least, you know, bring them to light and try to deal with it. Or I can, I can make those things so uncomfortable for her to bring up that she doesn't bring them up. And a lot of that stuff happens behind the veil. A lot of that stuff happens, it's not like, it's not like you sit down in your office and plan a way to make sure that she can't tell you things. It's, it's, it's instinctual. It's reactive. It's, it's whether or not in that, in, in that moment you have an ear to hear or you shut her down. Or him. Again, this goes both ways. It's really important that we have mechanisms for finding correction with each other that we want to hear. <coughs> so communication, collaboration, and correction. Those are, those are three things that we should be modeling in our marriages. I'm going to move on a little bit, and here's where the disjointed part feels. Another thing I want to talk about that affects, um, after marriages, that affects how we produce disciples in our homes is the issue of juvenile conversions. And the reason I want to bring that up is because there's a really important part of that whole issue that has to do directly with how we deal with our young people as they start to develop a conscience and start to work through their own thoughts about God and themselves. And this is, um, this is really important stuff. The pattern that I've seen that I, that I want to undo everywhere that I can there's something that happens um, the forces at play 
like the the social forces and relationship forces that are that are at play and leveraging the situation that happens with our children are enormous. Like I think that we don't properly appreciate how much we leverage our children with our culture, with our with our values, with our religious statements, the way we believe is an incredibly powerful force on our children. And they all know what the expected outcome is. And we're leveraging their whole lives, like unapologetically, like I want my children to be Christians. Like I'm not apologizing for that. I, I believe it, I believe it's true. But if I, there's nothing wrong with that. But if I don't realize how much force I'm applying to their life, I can, I can, it, it can become a brute force instead of an intentional force. And, and, and children grow up feeling that. So what I mean by that, let's, let's talk about what, let's unpack what that means. The expectation of the community of faith, the family are, you know, we're leveraging God and his perspective in these things is all being put onto this young person who's raised in our homes with an expected outcome that they're going to devote themselves to being a part of the kingdom of God. And, and um, and there's a real, there has been, I think, in 20th century Christianity, I'm going to make it that broad, there has been a real propensity to try to short shorten that um, process as much as possible within whatever unmovable barriers in whatever denomination or version of Christianity in the West to make that process as short as possible. And the reason for making it as short as possible is so that everybody can feel like they did their job. So that the parents can feel like they did their job, so that the community can feel like they did their job, so that the child can feel like they did their job. And the shortened version of conversion is, is, is salving everybody's feeling of responsibility. And it's making, it's making everybody feel like they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. And I, I mean, honestly, my, my, my children who are baptized were in their late teen years when they were baptized, 17 years old. I think all three of the girls were 17 when they were baptized. And <clears throat> it's different after they're baptized. Like, they, that's sensible from, from my framework because I'm expecting them to be adults and making their own decisions. So now I'm treating them differently after they're baptized than before they were. There's a different way that we interact. There's a different responsibility that I have for their life. I change in, in the dynamics of my responsibility for them when they go through baptismal waters. They have a different set of responsibilities. They're obligated now to the church, to God, in ways that they weren't before they were baptized. And so my interaction, my direct responsibility for them diminishes. If you do that at 13, like you feel like you're 12 or 11 or 10 or whatever age, if you do that too early, that same feeling of a diminished responsibility is there. I've watched it happen with people. And it's like they have a 12-year-old baptized child. And it's like, okay, well, now that, they're, now that they're misbehaving, you know, they have to go to God with that. I don't mean it that crassly. Nobody says it that way. But that's how everybody feels about the situation. 
And it's, it just short circuits a lot of that process that's supposed to build a child through a process where they're capable and, uh, uh, of making their own decisions and moving forward into that responsibility, into that proper responsibility of being a baptized believer in Christ and taking part in the community of faith. So that leverage of the, of the relationships, it produces a lot of reasons for getting baptized that are not conversion-specific. They're, they're good things. They're about um, wanting, wanting to do right, wanting to do right by the community, wanting to do right by the parents, the parents wanting to do right by the children. It's a lot of good things that are in the mix, but they're not the right it's not the right place, the right time. The other thing that often happens is that, and what I what I fear for people is that, if if that's in the mix of why that's happening, of why a baptism is happening, then what happens in the next phase is that we just developmentally speaking, neurologically, psychologically, spiritually, the later phase of childhood is where you develop a sense of self and correspondingly a sense of sin. And if you have a conversion, a juvenile conversion that's too early, and then you develop that sense of self and sin and have to wrestle with those things, what the normal process is is that you go from a child to an adult and, and as, as, as a fully functional adult mentality, you're wrestling now with who you are in relation to God, in relation to your sin, in relation to the world. And the result of that is to die in baptism and become new and start a whole new life. But if you do that too short, if you start here with the baptism and then this phase of understanding who you are and how you relate to sin and the temptations of the flesh and the problems <laughs> with you, there's no, there's no place now to go. You already got from the church what you were supposed to get to fix that. But then you experience all those things after the fact. Now you're in a place where you have all this existential doubt and dread and fear. And what am I supposed to do with, what am I supposed to do with lust? Like I didn't, I wasn't dealing with that before. Now I have this huge problem on my shoulders. I'm baptized. I'm supposed to be in the church and I got nowhere to take it. And this pattern happens over and over and over again. And I, I know that you all have talked about baptismal issues, and I'm not trying to I'm not trying to leverage that any. I'm just saying, in regards to how we deal with our children coming up in our homes, we need to understand that process. A child needs to grow to. Here's a couple of things that I think about that. If I believe what I believe, if I believe what what I believe is true, if I believe in the truth of the gospel, I don't want I don't need to use youth to leverage my children to get them to believe. I want them to be mature. I want them to be fully aware. I want them to be fully cognizant of what, what's being asked of them. I want them to have their full faculty about them when they choose to enter into the kingdom so that they don't ever have to wrestle with it, they don't ever have to doubt, they don't ever have to wonder if anything about it. I know that I chose for myself with all of my faculties about me to be this. And I believe in the power of the gospel. Like I don't, I, I, I believe in the strength of the testimony of Jesus in the resurrection. That's what I'm trusting in, not my leveraged place in their life. And so I'm willing to wait and let them get to the place where they need to. And, and, 
and people really need to get saved. They, they really, like, so, mm, one of my children in particular, uh, very thoughtful child, and he, he, um, he's gone through a process of a lot of, like, existential, philosophical dread and doubt and, and trying to figure out what is the world made of. And here's the really interesting thing. Trying to figure out, I've been raised in a Christian home. What of this do I believe and what of this have I inherited? And that's scary. That's a scary thing to go through with your child. But it's, it's entirely healthy. Like you're supposed to go through that. You're supposed to have to take the uh, look at look at what's being presented, and choose it for yourself. That's what we want, because that creates a holistic way of being a Christian. It's not a cultural way of being a Christian. It's a own for myself. Like I am choosing for me to be this. So, as it pertains to juvenile baptism. What often happens is people say, well, what do you do with your child when they come to you and they say, hey, I'm, I feel guilty about my sin. I'm 10 years old, 11 years old, 12 years old, 13 years old, and I'm, I'm bothered by my sin, and I don't want to go to hell, and I'm afraid of the holiness of God, and whatever, I listen to the sermon, and I think that whatever. People ask me, well, what do you do, Matthew, when that child comes to you? There's a couple of things that I do. One is that as a community... My children have been raised in an environment where adult baptism is expected. And so the expected outcomes when children come to my room and they're bothered by their sin is not that they're going to get baptized. Like there's no frame of reference for that. So that, that's not an expected outcome. Nobody's expecting it. And nobody in the room is expecting that that's what's going to happen. It's not what they ask for. They're trying to deal with guilt and conscience. And so we address guilt and conscience. And at that stage... Generally, conversion is not the, the answer to those things. I had, a, I had an older brother tell me one time um, an indicator that he used, and I think another way of saying it is losing your life or, or saving your life. An older brother told me when I, was, when I was a younger man, he said, when my children come to me and they say, I feel guilty, I feel like I shouldn't have done that, I don't want to go to hell, we pray and we repent and, and I encourage them and I tell them, that's good, you're doing the right things, I love you, God loves you, we'll go forward from here. He says, it's a very different thing when my children come to me later and they say, I'm apart from God. Like, I don't have a problem with the thing I've done. I have a problem with who I am. I have a problem with what I am. I have a problem that I'm disconnected from who God is. That's an entirely different. That's that's an entirely different thing to deal with. And looking for the difference, how that particular child interacts with that. The other thing that I'll tell you about that every one of my children who've gotten baptized have wrestled through at that later stage of childhood, is that there's um, there's a there's an in an inertia to overcome when you're raised in a Christian home. What I mean by that is this. How, as a, as a child raised in our homes, you know, they're not my children and, and, and Lord willing, yours too, aren't, aren't taking the path that I took. They're not going and living in desperate 
evil, vile sin and horrible circumstances that they have to wake up in some puddle of pus and say, oh, I hate this. How do I be something else? They're ra- being raised with discipline and order and and in a holy environment with the oracles of, of God and trained to obey, and trained to listen, and trained to hear, trained to receive instruction. You don't have a lot of the problems that I had when I was coming to the faith. And so, but if you're raised in that environment, when do you step over the line? Like, when do you decide, like, uh, Tuesday I'm going to be a Christian. Monday I'm a child in Papa's home. Tuesday I'm going to be a Christian in my own right. And stepping over that hurdle is actually one of the biggest things to look for later in your children's lives. The, 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 the inertia of being raised in a Christian home and being a generally good person, not having like very um, explicit manifestations of sin. Of course, sin is much broader. Like sin is in the heart. Sin is how we feel. Sin is the things we think, not always the things that we do. So those issues are obviously there with all of our children, but they have been there for this whole later phase of life, and how you decide to step into baptismal waters is a difficult thing. And that's happened in different ways with each of my children. Um, with Hannah, it was, uh, it was a, a George MacDonald sermon that she listened to, and he was talking about how if you want to know if you have faith, ask yourself if you are obeying because to obey comes from a place of faith. And she was like, well, that's it. I want to obey. I'm, I'm going to choose for myself to obey. I want to, I want to follow Jesus. I want to obey the Sermon on the Mount. I want to be his disciple. I want him to be my master. I'm choosing. I want this for myself, not just because I've been trained for it, but because I want to do it myself. And that was, that was what overcame the inertia in her life. And with the, with the other girls, it's something similar, just a different form. And so, what I what I've typically done with my children when they get into that phase is we look at we look at um, conversion in the Book of Acts, because most people who became Christians in the Bible were not the Philippian jailer. They did not have some miraculous experience happen that caused them to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Most people in the Bible who became Christians heard the preaching of the gospel, repented of their sins and chose to follow Jesus. That's the normal course of becoming a Christian in the Bible. They heard the preaching of the gospel, they repented of their sins, and they chose to follow God in baptism. That's the process. And, and, and the, especially for my children, the hyper-experiential, hyper-dramatic conversion situation is not healthy. It's not healthy to lay that out as the, the mark of what being a Christian is. The biblical marks are hearing the gospel, repenting of your sin, choosing to be a disciple through baptism. So I think that's encouraging when children are in that phase to say, hey, it doesn't have to be, you know, goosebumps and chills and lightning bolts in heaven. It, it really is about, I tell my children all the time, we wait for your, until you're an adult so that you can choose. Like, that's what you have to do. You have to choose. That's, that's what's holding you back, your choice to be a disciple. So that's that issue. Another issue that I think is worth talking about in regards to baptism of children, and this is a big subject, and I don't (coughs) think that I'll have a chance to deal with it properly, but one thing that has eased that transition about viewing juvenile baptism that way 
has been atonement theology. Um, and I, I, I don't have the time or place to make this a message about, about atonement theology, but, um, but the models of penal substitution and that the main object of coming to the gospel is to expiate God's wrath, to get rid of God's wrath, that's a, that's a broken model. What Jesus, what Jesus says about his own work on the cross is that he came to give his life a ransom for the sins of men. Why that matters is, is this. If you look at, here's the, here's the essential question to ask about the atonement. What is Jesus doing on the cross? Why is he there? There's two answers to that question that are presented by two different models of the atonement. And, you know, there's, there's, some, there's some people who, who um, try to advocate a blending of those ideas, and there may be some utility for that. But in the big picture, there's two basic ways of viewing what Jesus is doing on the cross. One, this, the gospel according to the one model goes like this. Here's the gospel presentation I grew up with. You're a sinner, and God is holy. And God cannot allow sin into his holiness. And so, so you and God can't be together because he's holy. And so in order to fix that problem, because God loves you, he sent his son to die on the cross. And there on the cross, Jesus poured out his wrath that you rightfully own, that rightfully belongs to you. He gave it to Jesus so that now, now that he's died and paid that price and raised again for your benefit, now God can look at you the way he looks at Jesus instead of the way he properly looked at you. That's called penal substitution atonement. That means that the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus so that you don't have to experience it. I think that's a very bad view of the atonement. I think it's a very bad view of version of the gospel. The way I present the gospel now, well, the way I present the atonement. The gospel is the kingship of Jesus. The way I present the atonement, the work of Jesus on the cross, is this. All of us were bound in captivity to sin. Like, through our own choices. Not because of Adam. Because of me. I chose to walk in sin. I chose to, to live a defiled life. I chose my way instead of God's. And because of that choice, I became a servant to sin. I became bound by its power. I became subject to the kingdom of darkness through my own choices. And there I found myself stuck in darkness and bondage under the principality of darkness, under the king of darkness, a servant of his. And Jesus went to the cross and gave himself a ransom. Ransoms are not paid to good people. Ransoms are paid to bad people. If a kidnapper comes and takes your child and sends you a letter in the mail and says, give me a million dollars, when you go get that million dollars ransom and give that, that's not to a good person. That's to set you free. That's to get your child out of the clutches of a captor. And that's the sense in which Jesus dies on the cross, to deliver his people from the clutches of the captor. And what the atoning work of Jesus does on the cross is it sets me free. And now, when I partake of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection through my own baptism, I go into the water and I die like Jesus died in a figure of sense. And I raise like Jesus raised in a figure of sense. Then now I can walk in what he broke. 
He broke death. He broke sin. And I can walk like he walked because he made a way for me to live like he lived. And what the atoning work on the cross does is it changes me. It doesn't change God. It changes me. And the main problem that man has is not God's wrath. The main problem that, God, that, the main problem that man has is not God's wrath. God does have wrath. I'm not trying to say that he's not angry with sin. But that's not our main problem. Because the same God who is angry also says he is quick to forgive and he is full of mercy. Getting God to forgive is not a hard thing to do. God is very merciful. He is very kind and he is very good. What's hard to do is to create men who have the power to not sin. That's what the work of the cross does. Now, why does this matter with our children? When you are stuck under the P, on a pure PSA model, you're always worried, like, God's going to get your children. Like, I know that sounds crass and horrible, but it's how people think. Like, if the whole point to the Christian narrative is to get people away from angry God's wrath, you're always fretting, like, what if we have a car accident? What if something happens? Who's going to go to hell? God's waiting, like, the wrath is there. We, how are we going to take care of the wrath? Again, I'm not trying to caricaturize God. There is wrath for sin, and that's going to come. But now is, now is, the, is the age of reconciliation. The church age, this whole epoch of humanity, is about reconciling. It's about making peace. It's about forgiveness. It's about grace. And we can walk with our children under the confidence and faith in the goodness of God. I don't have an underlying conviction that I have to get my children saved as soon as possible because God's going to get them. I want them to be converted and experience the grace of, of the atonement because I want them to be whole people. So I want them to be, here's the way I explain it to people, that this is new ideas. I don't have any idea if you guys have talked about this stuff or not. If it's a new idea, I'm sorry. I know it can be kind of jarring. But, but the way I explain it is this. Okay, this is Titus's house. I'm Titus's neighbor. I live across the street from Titus. But I hate Titus's guts. Just hate him. Just hate the guy. So every morning, when I go get my paper in my front yard, I walk over and I knock on Titus's door. And he opens the door and I slap him in the face. I say, I hate you. And I turn around and walk back to my house. Now when Titus closes the door, Titus is a Christian. Titus is a good Christian man. And when he closes the door, he gets on his knees and he prays that God, I forgive that man. I pray that you do whatever you need to do in his life. He's so broken. I don't have any, I don't, I don't count this against him. Don't charge this to his sins. Please, Father, work in this man's life. That's pure forgiveness. I do not have a forgiveness problem with Titus. Because every day when I knock on the door and slap him in the face again, I don't have a forgiveness problem. The problem in our relationship is not forgiveness. All the forgiveness that's necessary is already in place in the relationship. The problem that Titus and I have, the reason we can't ever have a relationship in that state, is that I can't stop offending him. The problem is not forgiveness. The problem is me being a transgressor. And the object to repair and reconcile the relationship is to get me to quit slapping Titus in the face. This is a good way, a good analogy for the atonement. What Jesus is doing on the cross is trying to get us to change so that we quit slapping God in the face. His mercy is ready. His forgiveness is there.
And that perspective change helps have confidence. And now I feel like, now I feel like me and God are working together to bring my children into grace. I'm not, he's not on the other side of the equation and trying to save them from God. God forbid, we're not trying to save our children from God. We're trying to save our children from sin. We're trying to save our children from the kingdom of darkness. It's on my list that hypocrisy and anger are certainly reasons that hinder our children becoming disciples. I think that goes without saying. I'm not going to belabor the point. But just to put it out there, if, if, if you're a phony, it's not going to work. Uh, it's worth saying, but it's not worth belaboring. Everybody knows that. Let's, let's focus on the positive. In regards to making disciples of your children, be their friends. I, I, my children are my favorite people to be around. I would, you all are great, but I'd way rather be with my children. I, I love being with my children. I, I, I love them when they're little. I love them when they're big. Like we have a, a, a telling Matt this morning, we have, um, we try to reserve Monday nights. There's so many people in our house all the time. We try to reserve Monday nights for family night. and. When we're lucky, you know, Chloe comes over and Hannah and David come up with the grandchildren and Elijah comes out of his little library hole and we all sit in the living room and hang out together. And it's just the best thing. It's my favorite time of the week. I just love being with them. And, and they love being, like we just love being together. And you can cultivate that, but here's how it comes. There's a, there's a, phase, there's a phase that happens sometime in the teenage years when you have really good conversations and, and you have to make a choice. Are we going to stay up and talk or are we going to go to bed? That's, that's really what it's been in my home. is like choosing to stay up and have the children sit on the edge of the bed and talk until one in the morning about whatever there is on their hearts. Is, it's, it's how you make friends. It's how you move from being little children in your home to being the friends that you live with. And it's, it's, a, it's well worth the lost sleep. It's well worth the connection and the, the time that it takes. It's fun and you ought to have, with your teenage children, you ought to have like, okay, finally it's one in the morning, get out of here, go to bed. Those are wonderful times. They're some of my favorite memories. So being a children's friends is a huge thing. And, you know, all the things that go along with friends, mutual respect, like learning to appreciate them for their insight and for their views and being, having open communication where they can ask hard questions, like keeping from, present, from, from having taboos. Like, if, hey, here's the thing. Here's the problem with taboos. If there are things that people can't ask, they're asking themselves anyhow. They're just not talking to you about them. You can't stop people from thinking things. If your children are going to have doubts about Christianity, don't, don't you want to talk to them about it? Don't you want to be the person that they want to ask? Mm-hmm. I, I am. I don't, I don't, because I can't, I can't make it so that they don't have doubts. I can just help them work through doubts when they have them. So you have to cultivate a space where they feel okay asking you. Just like... Just like the conversation with your wife and making it, making it not uncomfortable f- to have an uncomfortable conversation. 
Like, I want you to know that you can talk to me about whatever. About whatever. So some of that's, some of that stuff's language, you know? Talking, <coughs> one of the classic taboos in Christian homes is sexuality. It's, it's hard to have those conversations with children. But you have to start early, like just talk, having clear expressions of anatomy, understanding their bodies, knowing who they are, knowing what the difference between men and women is, knowing where babies come from. Like those conversations at age appropriate at age appropriate places make a space so that when they have questions, when there are things that they're wondering about, hey, the world is really freaky. There's a lot of weird stuff out there. And I want, I want to be the one to talk about those things with my children. I want to explain what's going on with homosexuality and gender confusion, why people are the way they are, and what's happening in the world around them. I want to have those conversations. Because they're not going to avoid it. It's out there. And so, so not being afraid to bring those things up and talk about them. I mean, it happened, divorce and remarriage, or single mothers, or single fathers, like these things are issues that you should feel comfortable to talk to your children about. Again, age appropriate, but, and age appropriate means different things to different children, but at age appropriate levels, create the space to have conversations about things so that they feel comfortable talking to you when they have questions. That makes you the safe space. That makes you the friend that they can go to. Okay, I'm going to close with one more thing. That, that'll probably be a good time. Um, I was thinking about the way that Jesus makes his disciples. And what's interesting about the way that Jesus makes his disciples is that, uh, well, there's lots of interesting things about Jesus makes his disciples. But what I was observing this morning when I was thinking about this is um, maybe in part due to our conversation, Kate, last night, is that there's this, there's this nested connection that Jesus has in his life. So at the outermost level, he's walking through the world, interacting with whoever can get to him, right? It's completely inclusive in that regard. Anybody who's there has access to him. And if you're the woman with the issue of blood and you can push through the crowd and get to him, he's there. If you're blind Bartimaeus and you can scream your head off and get his attention, he's there. If you're the masses that are there to, to, in, in the Galilee countryside to hear him sharing his teachings, he's there. But he moves from that space and he picks the twelve. And he takes the 12, and he has a special interest in them. And among the 12, he has three. Three that are super close. His intimates. And there's some things that happen with the three that don't happen with anybody else. And why should this be? What Jesus knows, and I think models for us, is that the work of making disciples is very intimate work. And it doesn't happen on the mass scale. There's important things to do with the masses. I mean, we put our messages out on YouTube for a reason. There's a message to be delivered. There's, we want to we scatter seed. Like, there's things to do for the public. There's things to do out in the world. There's things to do with as many people as we can interact with. 
that are important and meaningful for the kingdom of God. But that's not the only work there is to do. After that, there's these nested, close, intimate relationships that create real, deep conviction and truth. And that has to be built at a very tight level. And so I was thinking about if there's a way to view this pattern that Jesus has in terms of our family and our ministry and raising disciples in our home. And what, what, what was interesting to me is that if I take my marriage, me and Erica and the Lord, that's my three. That's my inner, that's my inner circle. That's the most intimate place. That's the most important place. That things are happen there that don't happen anywhere else. And then my family is the twelve. And this is like our band of people. And this is how this is this is the the ones that I'm training. The ones, you know, the twelve have access to insights in his teaching. He gives a teaching in public, and then in closed behind closed doors, he says, Do you understand what you're hearing? And they're like, No, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> He's like, well, let me tell you. Here's what I mean. Here's what this is. Here's what that is. Here's what this is. Here's what that is. And here's what you should take away from it all. And that's for them. That's because of their relationship, because of their closeness to him, they have access to that specialized information. So you have the same kind of like nested way. But there's a place. Why should it be that way? Like, what's the point of that? Well, the three creates a, a nucleus around the 12, and the 12 create a nucleus around the ministry of Jesus in the public. And the, the, real, the real reason for it is that this is Jesus' path to overtaking the world. Within 150 years, the church has reached every corner of the known world, the Greco-Roman world. It's all the way to Britain. Like, it's reaching the British Isles in 150 years. That's the outskirts of the empire. And, and how, how, how does that happen? It happens, because, it happens because there's an exponential growth pattern when you start small. When you start small and repeat. So I make three disciples. Those three disciples make three disciples. Those, each of those make three more. Each of those make three more. That's how you create exponential growth curves. And focus and what that requires, if we're mindful of those patterns, is that you have to come back to the small. You have to come back. I think that it would be great if there were no non-medically necessary abortions in America. How should I do that? Well, they, they're working on the laws. That's just creating chaos. I'm not sure if it's going to help or not, but whether it does or not, Abortions aren't going to go anywhere. They're still going to happen. If, if that's what's the most meaningful thing in my life, then I should find three women in my area who are considering an abortion and fix what's broken in their lives and teach them why it matters and have them go find three more and have them all go find three more. That's how you fix things. And there was a point in time um, probably, about, probably about seven years ago, give or take, and 
there's so much happening with the church and and our ministry and and um, there was a there's just a lot happening and Eric and I were talking about what we're going to do with everything that needed to be done and it was a little longer than that but anyhow there's all this stuff happening in our lives and we we're trying to decide how to prioritize things and what we were going to focus on and what we weren't and we made a very conscious decision we said we need 10 more years in the light of everything that needs to be done for 10 more years we've got to keep our number one main primary focus on our family now when I say that I'm not a <laughs> we're not in retreat like we're not in isolation when I say focus on our family like we still have people at our table most nights of the week we still interact with the church we have all kinds of stuff going on as a family that is focusing on the family to me like focusing on the family is showing and modeling how we make this how we practice evangelism how we respond to and work within the church all those things are a part of focusing on the family but the family is the focus and what Eric and I said is We've got to have 10 more years to get these children through. I need 10 more years where I can focus on my family and make sure that this comes out right. Because if this doesn't come out right, I feel like everything after that 10 years becomes really difficult. But if it does work right, if we can keep our, if we can keep our focus where it belongs, if we can do what we need to do as parents, and if we can get our children to the place where, they're, where we're where we're producing disciples out of our home, then the rest of our lives becomes an open door. And it really is the case, like just like Jesus' example of three making three and leading to exponential growth curves, the same is true with a family's ministry. The fact of the matter is, the reason that I'm here this weekend is because I have some children who are in the, in the church and faithful. Like if that wasn't the case, you shouldn't invite me here. I don't have any business here. And, and the family done well, the family done right, creates ministry. And it creates way more ministry than I can make without them. Chloe and her ministry, Hannah and her ministry, my children, as they come into the church and start taking their own part in the kingdom, is opening doors everywhere. But it requires that focus. And so having that, that model that Jesus used of looking at small things to make big changes certainly applies to how we prioritize and focus our, on our families.